Revelation 7, starting at verse 1. It says, And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed a hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Asher were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Naphtali were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Manasseh were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Zebulon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. And After this, I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes and whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sits on the throne shall dwell among them and they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of water and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to be in your house today, to be gathered together with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to have an opportunity to uh, assemble and to worship you and to declare that you are worthy of worship. And we ask, Lord, that you would bless this reading of your word and the declaration of it. We ask, Lord, that you would place upon us the understanding that's brought through your Holy Spirit, that we would see the glory of your Son, Jesus, and that all of those who have washed their robes white in the blood of the Lamb might praise and glorify and serve you faithfully. Please forgive us of our failures. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The Lord 
is a God of grace and mercy, even as he is a God of justice and wrath when he judges sin. When he destroyed the world with a flood, he preserved Noah and Noah's family, not because they were righteous, but as a show of God's grace. It says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. When God rained fire down on Sodom and Gomorrah, he providentially provided a means of salvation for Abraham's nephew Lot. When the Lord poured one plague after another out on Egypt, the Hebrews of the region of Goshen saw those plagues and yet were protected and entirely spared from many of them. When the Lord in his miraculous fury against Jericho poured out his wrath there. Rahab and her house were saved from his wrath, not because she deserved to be saved, but simply because God is always glorified in being gracious. The grace of God demonstrated in the salvation brought through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, is the theme of Revelation 7. Now, to remind you where we are, Though the lamb in Revelation 5, the lamb alone was worthy to take the scroll from the right hand of the father on the throne and the Lord Jesus himself, the lamb that was slaughtered but standing, took that scroll of God's plan for human history and started to break the seven seals that were on that scroll one at a time. The first four seals as they were broken brought forth four, what we call the four horsemen of the apocalypse, bringing judgment on the earth. When the fifth seal was broken, the martyrs appealed to the Lord for justice against this wicked world. And yet those martyrs were told to endure patiently the time as even more martyrs would be killed and join their ranks before God completes his wrath against the wicked. And while the world... and in, in those first five seals, the world could and, and surely will deny that those cataclysmic events of the first five seals were the work of God. When the sixth seal was opened, we read and we find them in Revelation 6, hiding from, quote, the wrath of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And at that point, when the sixth seal is open, the world's no longer going to be able to, de- to deny that the events transpiring represent the wrath of the righteous God. Now, if we were reading Revelation for the very first time, we would now expect that it's time for the Lamb to break the seventh seal from that scroll. But the reality is, we're not there yet. Revelation 8 is going to open with that final seal being broken, followed by a brief and terrible foreboding silence. So this week, we're between that sixth seal being broken and the seventh seal being broken. So Revelation 7 represents a a parenthetical vision of sorts. I, I think it's here because there is a question that has been asked that demands an answer. 
Do you remember how Revelation 6 ends? All the wicked people of the earth in Revelation 6, 15, from kings and nobles, the rich, the military officers, the strongest soldiers, everyone from slaves to free. They're hiding in the caves and the mountain crevices, appealing for the mountains to fall on them and crush them because in verse 17, the day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? Now, as the world cries that out, what do they mean by that question? If you read it like I do, it sounds like a rhetorical question, a question with an obvious answer. Who is able to stand when God pours out his judgment on the earth? Nobody. But what the world sees as a rhetorical question actually does have an answer. John's vision of these seven seals being broken one at a time is after this question is briefly interrupted by this parenthetical chapter, Revelation 7 is going to answer that question at the end of chapter 6. Just like Noah was able to stand during the time of the flood and just like Lot was able to stand as Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, just like the Hebrews were able to stand as God poured out plague after plague on Egypt, just like Rahab's house literally was left to stand as the walls of Jericho collapsed. By God's grace, in his power, for his glory, there are those who will be able to stand. The grace of God demonstrated in the salvation brought through the blood of his son Jesus is the only source of power that makes a man able to stand during God's wrath. What we're going to see in this chapter, we'll look at it in three sections. Verses 1 through 3, the Lord restrains his wrath. In verses 4 through 8, the Lord fulfills his promise. And in verses 9 through 17, the Lord rewards his saints. Let's look at him, the Lord restraining his wrath. Verses 1 through 3. After these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending or rising from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Now, it's worth noting is that as the text says, after these things, it is giving John's visions in the chronological order that John received his vision, but it does not necessarily mean that it is unfolding world events in chronological order. Imagine if there was a, a history teacher and you were taking a, a semester-long class and they designed their course in order to present one, lec one lecture after another, but instead of basing it on time frames, they were basing it on themes. They were basing it on different concepts and different subjects. 
well, then the order that you learned about events is not necessarily going to be the order in which the events happened. The same thing's happening here at times in Revelation. We have to remember, John is giving us the chronology of how he received his visions without slavishly saying that his visions were unfolding in the chronological order they're going to happen. Now, if you don't grasp what I'm saying, don't panic because it's not that important right here, but I want it in your mind for later because it's going to become important uh, in future weeks. Now, remember also that the chapter and verse divisions of the Bible were added as helpful reference guides, but they aren't to in the original text. So that final question of chapter 6, verse 17 Who's going to be able to stand when the great day of the Lord's wrath has come? That question is still echoing in John's mind as he says, after these things, he gets a new vision. It is an answer to that question. And the answer doesn't begin with who can stand. The answer begins by describing how anyone could stand. John sees four angelic beings standing, he says, at the four corners of the earth, Holding, or literally the word there means holding back or restraining the four winds so that they wouldn't blow. Now, let's just go ahead and answer the mindless criticism of scripture that comes along with verses like this. You've no doubt heard someone say something like, well, look at that, the four corners of the earth. You can't trust the Bible because those ancient goobers writing it thought that the earth was flat. No, they didn't. Job 26, 7 describes God hanging the earth on nothing. Isaiah 40, verse 22, describes the Lord looking over what Isaiah says is the circle of the earth. The term the four corners of the earth is just a common expression like the ends of the earth. It describes the far distances in each direction. One of the things that's funny to me is that those who point to such you know, easily understood expressions like this to complain about the Bible's accuracy will themselves use similar common expressions. Like they will use the term sunset. And I want to look at them and go, do you think the sun is sitting down somewhere, you goober? You know, of course they don't believe that. But they won't take the same criticism that they want to launch against God's word. And so these are just expressions that make communication easy. The four angelic beings that John sees or he says, holding back the four winds so that they don't blow on the earth, the sea, or on any trees. Now, let's be clear here. When I'm saying that God restrains his wrath, it's God that does it. These angelic beings are not holding back the wrath of God from the earth. No person nor any created being has the power to hold back God's wrath from the earth. What these angels are holding back is for a brief time the work that they've been sent to do. And so look at verse two. When another angel rises in the east and speaks to these four angels, it describes those four angels as to them it was given to hurt the earth and the sea. This is what they were sent to do. And yet these four angels 
So they're not withholding God's wrath. They are the instruments of God's wrath who have been commanded for a brief time to restrain the job that they're doing. Don't do what you've been sent to do quite yet. This angel arising in the east said in verse 2 to have the seal of the living God. And he commands these four wrath-bearing angels to not hurt the earth, nor the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Unlike the other angels, this one that's ascending from the east is not a messenger sent to execute the wrath of God and judgment. This is an angel bringing the merciful protection of God for his people. He has a seal, it says. That's the same word that's been used all along in Revelation, right? The lamb took the scroll from the right hand of the father and broke the seals from the scroll one at a time. The seal carried by the angel is the very same word as that. When, when Joy and I got married, we tried to do the traditional, the groom doesn't see the bride on the wedding day thing. But I knew when we got married, I was going to have a lot to say to her throughout that day. So what I did was I bought a stamp with an S that was embossed in the stamp so that throughout the day, each of my groomsmen took her a note in which I had written a note and I had melted wax and I'd pressed that seal into it thinking that when she broke that seal, she knew that this was a message that had come from me and it had not been tampered with in any way. So in that illustration, what is the seal? Is the seal the, the stamp? Is the seal the, the wax that holds the impression of the stamp? Is the seal the, the actual impression of the S that's in that wax? The answer is all of those are true. You would use the same word for all of those things. All three could be described as the seal. So when John is using this word through the early chapters of Revelation, there is a scroll with seven seals, right? It has been secured, tamper-proof. And Jesus the Lamb takes and he begins to break those seals from the scroll one at a time. And as he breaks those seals, these events start to transpire. But here in Revelation 7, the word is used, same word, to describe the device essentially that makes the seal. So it would work like this. If you want to picture this as the angel is carrying instead of the seal of the living God, if you want to think of it as the, he's carrying the stamp of the living God in his hand, and he, he cries out to the other four angels to refrain from executing their judgment for a time because he's going to go through the earth and he has to complete his job. He has to, he says, seal the servants of our God in their foreheads. Now, what the seal of God is, is when... <laughs> Let me just say, here's a place where I'm going to get tongue-tied because I don't have the answer to the question that is in my head. What does that seal look like? What's it look like when someone gets stamped with the seal of God in their forehead? What that looks like and, and, and how, it, how it works is, is not something that we know. 
But when that seal is placed on them, they are owned by God. They are authenticated as being gods. They are now secure and tamper-proof. Judgment is restrained while they are sealed so that they will be they will be safe and undamaged during the judgment to come. They will not be tampered with. So as I said, the answer to that question, who is able to stand, the answer doesn't start with who. John's vision starts with how. How will anyone be able to stand? And the only way is because the same God who is sending his wrath and judgment to the earth mercifully restrains that judgment and wrath on those whom he chooses to protect. Verses one through three, the Lord restrains his wrath. Then the Lord fulfills his promise. Only after that clear declaration of how anyone could stand during the judgment of God, we start to get the answer to who will stand. Verse four, I heard the number of them which were sealed. And there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Asher were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Naphtali were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Manasseh were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Zebulon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. And of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. What should be obvious in verses four through eight, but is apparently difficult for some folks to grasp, is that John is telling us what he heard Verse four, the beginning of verse four, I heard the number of them which are sealed. Not that John saw those that were sealed and then went about trying to describe them in terms that were familiar to himself. But John heard, presumably from the same voice of the angel that called out to restrain God's wrath, he heard that 144,000 were sealed and that, that represents 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. This is a sort of hotly debated section of Revelation, like there aren't any hotly debated sections of Revelation, but this has nothing to do with 144,000 faithful Jehovah's Witnesses or elders of the Mormon church. And yet, even within Orthodox faith, those who, who I consider to be brothers and sisters in Christ, there are those who embrace replacement theology that essentially says Old Testament Israel has passed away and now all the promises to Old Testament Israel are fulfilled in the church. The church is Israel. And until I'm convinced by that from scripture, I'm just going to stick with the crazy notion that Israel is Israel. My question to them is when we come to a passage like this is okay if the church is Israel, which tribe of Israel is your church a part of? I mean, this breakdown of the 12 tribes of Israel, it has to mean something, right? The Lord God made promises to Abraham and to David and to others regarding his plan 
for his people. And to be sure, there was rebellion on the part of Israel and the Lord judged their sins severely. But his promises were stated many times as an everlasting covenant. For example, Genesis 17, verse 19, I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. First Chronicles 16, 17, he has confirmed the same to Jacob, to Israel for a law and to Israel for an everlasting covenant. Isaiah 55, verse 3, Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear and your soul shall live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. In Ezekiel 16, verse 60, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish unto you an everlasting covenant. It should be evident that God has a plan for his people, Israel, and that plan is a permanent plan. Even though they failed to uphold their covenant relationship with him, his promises were unconditional. They were forever. They are secured by his own faithfulness and his own word. So even as the Jewish people persecuted Christians in the first centuries of the church. Paul warned those Christians not to despise Israel because there was a plan for Israel from God to save that nation. This is what Paul says in Romans 11, 25 through 27. I do not desire, brothers, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness in part, has happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he'll turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. When Israel is saved, they will be saved by faith in Jesus, their Messiah. They will be forgiven of their sins by grace through faith, just as we are. Now, this text is not suggesting that only 144,000 Jewish believers will be saved. It is simply describing that during these sort of cataclysmic events, of the tribulation that there are 144,000 Jewish believers who are sealed, who are protected as servants of God to remain as his witnesses of the gospel of his son. And if the unconditional promise of God and the detailed explanation of the apostle Paul isn't enough to convince you that God's not finished with Israel, then you have to just let the words of Jesus himself mesh with this text in your mind. In Matthew 19, 28, as he spoke to his disciples, he promised them that someday the Son of Man would sit in glory and you will sit also upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He had to mean something by that. Now, returning to our text in Revelation 7, we shouldn't ignore that verses 4 through 8 do contain some genuine oddities that puzzle us. 
Throughout scripture, there are about 20 different times that the names of the tribes of Israel are listed like this. None of those other times is the list quite like this. This list doesn't match exactly with any of the lists of the Old Testament. For example, this is the only time that the tribe of Judah is listed first, and that's probably because Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and so he gets prominence. The tribe of Levi is often not mentioned in the Old Testament because as priests, the tribe of Levi was not given a specific area of the promised land, they were given different cities that were spread throughout all the tribes. And so many times they're not even on the list. And yet there's Levi on the list in verse seven. Meaning if we're still just going to have 12 tribes, if you add Levi to the list like this, somebody's got to get left off, right? And in this case, the one left off is the tribe of Dan, which is not on this list anywhere. It's probably because they fell into gross idol worship, just flagrantly rebellious against God. The tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim in the Old Testament were named after Joseph's two sons. Joseph's father, Jacob, Israel, adopted Joseph's sons. And so Ephraim and Manasseh were themselves tribes of Israel. And yet while Manasseh is on the list in verse six, Ephraim is left off the list and he is replaced in verse eight with the tribe of Joseph. And so what do we make of all that? Personally, I I don't make a lot of it. I don't know much to say other than this. If you have heard of people talk about the lost tribes of Israel, they are not lost. Jewish people today are able to identify themselves as Jewish, but seldom, if, if ever, can they identify themselves as descendants from a specific tribe within Israel. This text should be a great reassurance to them God knows his own even better than they do. The certainty of their salvation is going to be based on their knowledge, not of themselves, but on their knowledge of Jesus, their Messiah. They're going to look to him in faith and be saved. The Lord restrains his wrath. Verses four through eight, the Lord fulfills his promise. And then starting in verse nine, the Lord rewards his saints. Now, as we delve into this last section of the text, let me just draw your attention to how the chapter helps interpret itself. If we need some further evidence that verses five through eight are describing the nation of Israel, then listen to how verse nine begins by identifying and saying, this is a different group of people. Verse nine, after this, I beheld and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations of kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes and palms, that is palm branches in their hands and cried with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God, which sits upon the throne and unto the lamb. 
No, in a way, this still emphasizes the previous point that the Lord fulfills his promises. His promise to Abraham was not just that his descendants would possess the promised land, but he promised to Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And we see that fulfilled here as well. Here we see all the nations, kindreds, people, tongues, individuals from all of those groups declaring the glory of salvation brought by God on the throne and the Lamb. Every ethnicity, every tribe, every language is represented in those who are saved by grace, by faith in Jesus Christ. There is no sign of racism or favoritism or antagonism because they are not preoccupied with looking at each other. They are preoccupied with giving glory to God. They're clothed in righteous white robes. They're holding palm fronds, palm branches in their hands, much like when King Jesus entered in triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem. They call out salvation to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. That is, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. All those who are redeemed by Christ's blood know with certainty salvation belongs to the Lord. Additionally, they are leading the heavenly chorus in worship. If you remember the angels and and the beasts, right, the living creatures, and the elders back in Revelation 4 and 5, they, they show up here again, verse 11, and all the angels stood around the thro- about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts, and they fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. Let me just quickly break down that list of worship in verse 12. Blessing is that the word of praise belongs to God. Glory is literally the word doxa, doxologies, right? Songs of praise, recognition, recognition of his greatness belongs to God. Wisdom, more than just his omniscience in which he knows all things, but using that knowledge to do all things well, recognition belongs to our only wise God. Thanksgiving, right? Appreciation and acknowledgement belongs to God. Honor, that is esteem or dignity or renown. The recognition of his great reputation belongs to God. Power and might, these words seem so closely related, but there's slightly different emphasis. The word power is the word dunamis, where we derive our term dynamite from. It is the inherent ability to do what he wishes. The word might relates more specifically to his acts of salvation through history, so that he is all powerful to do what he wants. And what he has shown that he wants is to save his people. We could say, the enduring and saving power of God should be praised. In each of these facets, God alone is the object of worship, both for us today, right here in this building right now, and verse 12, forever and ever. Now, do you ever experience when someone talks during worship service and asks you what's going on? 
The Apostle John, as he receives this vision, is no doubt awestruck and captivated by the, the glory of this worship. But one of the elders from around the throne turns around and asks him a question. Although it is evident that this question is intended not so much to elicit an answer from John as it is to make John think more deeply about what it is he's seeing, to pique his curiosity. John can't answer this question, but he knows the elders can. Look at verse 13. One of the elders answered, saying unto me, what are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? In other words, who are these people you're seeing? Where did they come from? And I said unto him, sir, you know. (laughs) Why don't you tell me? And he said to me, these are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple, and he that sits on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat, for the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them into living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes." We'll have more to say in future weeks about the difference between the term tribulation and the term great tribulation. But for now, the tribulation is the seven-year period with the rise of the Antichrist and the troubling of the world as a whole. The great tribulation is referring to the latter part of the tribulation when the judgment of God begins to intensify and signs of his wrath increase. But for this text, just note that those John sees leading worship in heaven in this scene came out of great tribulation. And yet they have, quote, have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So let's ask this question. Will there be saved people, saints of God, in the time of the tribulation? Yes. This is not talking about those Jewish believers from verses 5 through 8. This is very obviously a different group that is innumerable, he says, from every nation. If you believe that the rapture of the saints happens at the end of the seven-year tribulation, then this text causes you no problem or inconsistency. But if you believe that the rapture of the saints occurs before the seven-year tribulation, then these folks who are saved during the tribulation period, saved by faith in Jesus Christ just like we are, The question looms, if God protected his people by rapturing them before the tribulation, why didn't these folks get the same deal? Based on verse 16, just a a sampling of what these saints endured is intense hunger and thirst and heat, not having shelter from the sun, but God in his mercy answers this painful existence with his gracious supply. In several ways. First, he gives them shelter. The end, the phrase at the end of verse 15, he that sits on the throne shall dwell among them, is frankly not a great translation of the phrase that John wrote. He uses the word dwell or tabernacle or 
tent. Along with that, he uses the word that means over. And so what John wrote literally is he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. No doubt God will dwell with them. But this elicits images of the Old Testament tabernacle as God's protection over his people. He will give them shelter. Second, he will supply their needs. In verse 17, the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them. Really love, you want to circle that word feed and right next to it the word shepherd. That's what this word in Greek, poimen, means to shepherd. It's the same word that Jesus uses in John 10 when he described himself as the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. It's the same idea as in Psalm 23, where the Lord is the shepherd who will lead us to green pastures and and still waters. The, The idea is right there in verse 17. He's going to shepherd his people to fountains of living water. And so in John 10, he is the good shepherd. In Hebrews 13, he's the great shepherd. First Peter tells us he's both the shepherd king and the chief shepherd. Here, he's the comforting shepherd. He's going to provide for his people because he will shepherd them. And then third, he will comfort them. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There's no more pain, there's no more sorrow, there's no more suffering, there's no more tears because there's no more cause for tears for these people. The salvation which the Lord owns himself, the salvation which belongs to the Lord and which is is granted to his people, and which he seals them, he he secures them forever in his presence, is, is the comfort that they need, the The elder informing John here is almost certainly borrowing from God's promise to Isaiah in Isaiah 25, verses 8 and 9. This is God's promise. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people will be taken away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The blessing here is to be present with him and worshiping him. As verse 15 says, they before the throne, they're before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. How do they serve him? Well, they serve him by declaring his blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and, and power and might. They serve him by worshiping him. The worship of God is service to God. You might, and in fact, you should do more in your service to God than be there to worship him. But you certainly are not called to do anything less than that. If you are his servant, then you want to be in his presence to serve him through worship. Now, there is one thing that we missed, surely more than one thing, but Specifically, I intentionally skipped a phrase because I wanted to end with it. It lends clarity to this whole chapter. If the point of Revelation 7 is to answer that question, who is able to stand, then this picturesque description 
in Revelation 7 points us to the end of verse 14. Who is able to stand? It's those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There are few, if any, images in Scripture that are more profoundly shocking than the imagery of washing clothes in the blood of the Lamb and having them turn white in the process. About the only thing we can imagine is having white clothes and spoiling them by getting bloodstains on them. But the description of salvation takes that picture and it just flips it upside down. The the saints of God are not perfect people. They are people whose clothes are filthy with sin and yet they have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ and that blood has made them come out perfectly, brilliantly white. Again, the imagery here is probably borrowed from a couple of places in Isaiah where Isaiah wrote, we are all unclean, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And yet God speaks to Isaiah and says, though your skins be, sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. The purity and righteousness necessary to be able to stand in the day of God's wrath, much less to serve him, comes from only one source, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And he will seal and protect his people by his sovereign design. He will receive worship of his people as they declare his blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might forever. He will spread his tent over them. He will shepherd them to green pastures and fountains of living water. He will wipe away all the tears from their eyes. And he will do all of this based solely on the righteousness of his son. Who is able to stand? Those who have their robes made white in the blood of Jesus Christ. 